How wonderful it is that we get to gather on this tired daylight savings day and be awakened by God's word. We will be doing that this evening by continuing our series in the book of Galatians. We'll be looking at Galatians 4. Would you please rise out of reverence for God's word? We're picking up again in Galatians 4. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 20. Please give careful attention to this reading of God's word. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to make much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the living and active word of the living and true God. Please receive it as such and be seated. What is friendship? Who are your friends? Why are they your friends? What makes a good friendship? And why am I asking you these questions right now? The concept of friendship is intuitively known to us, even from our youngest of days as children. We make friends and we understand it, but we don't often reflect on it and what this concept means and how we can answer these questions. While we may not offer reflection on this very often, theologians and philosophers have reflected on the concept of friendship over the ages. Uh, Perhaps the most influential discussion in the ancient world of friendship is Aristotle, the Greek philosopher, in his Nicomachean Ethics. Aristotle has a long two chapters on what friendship is. In this chapter, in these two chapters, he lists three different kinds of friendships. The first one that Aristotle mentions, and I think you may not characterize it as this, but we all kind of know what these kind of friendships are. The first one he talks about is a pleasure-based friendship. This is the friendship that you have with the guy that you like to go to Gators games with, or the book club that you have. The basis of your friendship with this person is watching football together or reading books with them. If one of you loses interest in that habit, then the friendship essentially ends. The second category of friendship, which Aristotle gives, 
is that of utility-based friendship. What do I get out of this relationship? Um, maybe that's a coworker that you have, or maybe it's your family member who has your account info for Netflix or Spotify. As soon as you take away that benefit, the friendship is essentially gone, because that was the only thing tying you together. And the third category that Aristotle has is a virtue-based friendship. In fact, he says that this is the only friendship that is worthy of the name. A virtue-based friendship is just that. It is based on your own personal virtue and the virtue of the other person. Aristotle will say that a friend like this is another self, that you see yourself as an emir with them, and you help each other grow as better people. And he, in fact, says that the first two of pleasure and utility is actually found in this virtue-based relationship as you enjoy each other and as you actually help each other achieve goals. So that's Aristotle's category of it. But okay, why talk about all this friendship? And what does Aristotle have to do with Paul and the text before us? Well, I actually think thinking about friendship and its concept from a non-Christian perspective can really help us understand Paul's theology more broadly, but also this particular text in front of us. Pauline scholars have recognized that while Paul doesn't necessarily use the language explicitly of friend or friendship, yet he does use related terms and concepts such as kinonia, fellowship, partnership, and phronesis, way of mind or understanding. The book of Galatians in the Philippian church has been noted as Paul's an example of Paul's theology of friendship. He and the church at Philippians, the Philippian church, are mutual partakers in God's grace. And they've entered into a fellowship of ministry and suffering, of giving and receiving, of material and spiritual goods, all of which come from God and redound to God's glory. Philippians is notorious for being one of Paul's most positive treatments. He has a lot of good things to say about this church. That's because he has a good friendship with this church. Well, if Philippians is a positive example of what friendship looks like, the book of Galatians is an example of friendship on the rocks. Paul is struggling in his friendship with the Galatians. Through the influence of false teachers, they are being told that Paul's actually not your friend. He's your enemy, and you need to be friends with us. As we look at this text today, it is helpful to keep in mind a key distinction between Paul's theology of friendship and all other forms of non-Christian friendship. When Aristotle and other people in the world talk about friendship, it's between two people, an individual and another individual, and it's based on your own personal virtue. But for Paul, there is a necessary third party in your relationship, and that is the triune God. And that is actually the basis of the friendship, not your own personal virtue, but your union to the living God through Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit. This is the issue at Galatia. The false teachers are claiming to be friends of the Galatians. But in reality, they are seeking to draw them away from Christ and after themselves. But Paul is trying to drive them back to Christ. 
Paul, in fact, is being a true and good friend to the Galatians. What we'll see today is that true friendship and true gospel ministry must never be about making much about ourselves or others, but always be about making much, being zealous for the Lord Jesus Christ. In our relationships with each other, moreover, we must constantly be pushing each other to Christ, in whom we share hope and life. To come to that conclusion, we're going to consider three simple points from this text. First, we will look at knowing God, verses 8 through 11. Second, we'll look at knowing God's servants, verses 12 through 16. And finally, we'll look at knowing yourself. Knowing God, knowing God's servants, and knowing yourselves. Let's look at that first point, knowing God. So far in chapter 4, Paul has described that with the sending of God's Son, Jesus Christ, into the world, the fullness of time has come. In his incarnation, Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, and died a cursed death on the cross in order to redeem his people from slavery and to bring them adoption as sons with the Spirit of the Son crying out in their hearts, Abba, Father. As sons and daughters of God, believers are co-heirs with Christ to all the covenant promises of God. That's the terrain that he's covered so far in chapter 4. And that's the context for the rebuke which Paul gives in verses 8 through 11. And it really is a rebuke. And also the appeal which he will make, the extended appeal in verses 12 through 20. So he begins, Formerly, when you did not know God, You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. This is in reference, remember he's speaking to the Galatians who came from a pagan background. This is in reference to their past life in paganism. By talking about being enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, he may just be referring to the worship of idols which they had that were made by human hands. But it's likely that Paul has something a bit more in mind here. In 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 20, Paul states, What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. I think a similar thing is happening in Galatians here. I think Paul is reminding them of their former life and devotion to pagan worship, and he's highlighting to them and showing them that when you were in that, you were actually enslaved to demonic forces. That was formerly. But something has happened which changed the situation. Paul says, but now you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. Formerly, they did not know God. They blindly worshipped idols and were enslaved to demonic forces, but now they have come to know God. And it's not just that they know of the true God in a generic sense. No, Paul's saying something much more. They've come to know God through his Son and the truth of the gospel, and they have experienced the power of God's Holy Spirit, so much so now that they know God as their Father, and they cry out to him. 
This is what it means to truly know God, the triune God, receiving Christ by faith and being united to him by the Holy Spirit and calling out to God as Father. But notice how Paul kind of immediately catches himself and almost corrects his statement, saying, now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God. By making this statement, he's not denying that they do personally know God, but rather, he's highlighting a more central fact, something that's even more true. Not even more true, but more centrally important. That they are personally known by God. And in Scripture, this language is familiar. Being known by God communicates more than a general knowledge of our existence. God is the maker and sustainer of each and every one of us. He knows of our existence. But what it's communicating when it says that you are known by God is that you are chosen individually and personally by God. You are loved by Him. What it means to be known by God is that before all time, He chose you in His Son. And in the fullness of time, He sent forth His Son to die for you and to redeem you from slavery. That's why Paul asked them the startling question, knowing all of this to be true, Galatians, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be again? Paul's actually perplexed. He's asking them this question in confusion. How can this be? Here Paul says something which would have been shocking to someone raised in Judaism. Earlier in chapter 4, Paul has used this same phrase, elementary principles of the world, in verse 3. As we talked about the other week, this was in reference to the Old Testament Jewish forms of worship abstracted from Christ. As Paul says in Colossians, all of these things were shadows, but Christ himself is the substance, and he has come. To go back to the shadows, Paul was saying, now that the substance has come, is to enslave yourself to earthly things and disassociate yourselves from Christ and the significance of his person and work. Now the truly shocking thing in verse 9 is that Paul is basically equating reliance on the Jewish forms of worship now that Christ has come with the Galatians' past life in paganism. And he's saying you're returning to the exact kind of thing. This is because the entire purpose of the law, as Paul has explained repeatedly to them, was to point to Christ and lead them to trust in the perfection of his person and work. But now that these false teachers are leading them to believe that faith in Christ is not enough, you need to be circumcised and submit to all the ceremonial law. Paul even says that they are observing days and months and years in seasons. This is in reference to the Jewish religious calendar. They were seeking to submit themselves to the fullness of the ceremonial law and trying to obtain their own righteous standing before God through law-keeping. And Paul is trying to tell them that all of this is wrong-headed, that far from being pleasing to God, they're insulting him by not accepting all that he has given them in the person and work of his son. By rejecting God's perfect provision in Christ, they're not merely trying to go back to Sinai 
Rather, they're seeking to return to the captivity of Egypt. The forces behind this movement, as in their previous pagan worship, are indeed demonic. They're denying the full and complete sufficiency of the person and work of Christ. And Paul says that is going into slavery, not the freedom of sons. Thus, Paul says an exacerbated desperation. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is a serious statement. We can paraphrase as, all my work among you, I'm afraid that it's worthless. Imagine hearing that from your pastor. I fear that this has been completely worthless. This is the dignity and the danger of the gospel message. The Galatians who once did not know God but were enslaved to this world and demonic forces which are not God's have come to know God as their Father in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yet not understanding the full implications of this reality, they were seeking to forsake their dignified positions as sons and daughters of God and to sell themselves back into slavery by seeking to submit to the law and its requirements in order to obtain a righteousness of their own, even though they already had a perfect righteousness in Christ. This is the danger that we all face, those of us who have been blessed to hear the gospel message of God's grace. Will we receive it by faith and rest in God as our our kind Father? Or will we reject God's message and seek to find our own satisfaction and status of worth? When we do this, we we reject a true knowledge of God and seek to enslave ourselves to the things of this world. Pivotal in our quest to know God is being able to assess and know God's true servants, which brings us to our next point. We've just considered knowing God. Now let us look at knowing God's servants. Throughout chapters 3 and 4, Paul has offered an extensive argument that the Galatians, who have believed in Christ, are united to him and as such are Abraham's offspring, sons and daughters of God, and heirs to all the covenant promises of God. He's just rebuked them for turning from this reality, turning from a true knowledge of God, and returning to enslavement to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now he turns from his rebuke and begins to appeal to them as a father. So in verse 12 he states, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. What does Paul mean by become as I am? Well, it's always helpful to read on. It's helpful that he adds, for I also became as you are. In this way, Paul is referring uh, to his understanding of the Christian life more generally and his ministerial principle more specifically. We've talked about this in our study in evening instruction of the book of Acts. Paul famously states in 1 Corinthians 9.22, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. The reason why Paul can become all things to all people, whether Jew or Gentile, is because, as he said earlier in Galatians, through the law, he has died to the law. He has been crucified with Christ. The life he lives in the flesh, he lives by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him. 
All stereotypes, all boundaries, all laws have now been reconfigured through Paul's knowledge of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. It changes all of reality. So when he appeals to the Galatians to become as he is, he is calling on them to recognize their freedom as Christians. They are no longer beholden to the world, the flesh, and the devil with all their definitions and understandings of what constitutes worth and value. Paul wants them to understand that the only thing that truly matters is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and union by His Spirit to Him. To remind the Galatians of how they had formally embodied this reality, he states, You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. Paul seems to be thinking about a specific weakness of his flesh, an illness or a bodily injury that made him have to stop and preach the gospel in Galatia. It's notoriously hard to pin down exactly what Paul is talking about. Some connect it to the statement later on about them wanting to rip out their eyes and give them to Paul, and it may be inferring from that that Paul had weak eyes. Others connect it with Paul's thorn in the flesh that's talked about in other places. But I think based on what we've seen in this series, that we're going on the Southern Galatian view and earlier writing of the letter, in Acts 14, there's an instance of when Paul is actually attacked by the Jews and stoned in Lystra. Uh, This would have then been an occasion for him to be in complete weakness, having been stoned, and then taking shelter among the Galatian church. I think that's probably the best answer for what he's referring to here by the weakness of his flesh. Regardless of the exact historical situation, Paul is clear here that his ministry began among the Galatians in and because of weakness in his flesh. He acknowledges that his weakness in the flesh was a trial to the Galatians, but that in this trial they neither scorned him or despised him. That could be translated actually as spit on him. In the ancient world, the guy you were connected to as your teacher reflected something about you and you reflected something about them. Paul, in complete weakness and complete distress, would have been an embarrassment to the Galatians. But instead of rejecting him, despising him, spitting on him, Paul commends their former behavior as having received him. He says, not only did you not scorn me, despise me, or spit on me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. In saying this, Paul is saying that the Galatians had received him as a herald of good news, as an angel proclaiming God's good news, even as Christ Jesus himself. The warm reception of Paul and his weakness is in contrast to their present rejection of him. In verse 15 he says, What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Paul's statement here could reflect his reference to his reference to the blessedness and their happiness when they first received the gospel message. It, it might be saying, moreover, that based on Paul's visit to them, they formally considered themselves to be blessed. 
Paul himself and his visit to them was a blessing to this community. And that is how they looked on it formerly. Paul testifies to this conviction so much so, saying that he bears testimony that they were willing to rip out their eyes and give them to Paul. Now, this could be evidence for that sentiment that Paul has poor eyesight. And we have in other letters that see with what big letters I write. It seems that Paul did have that. But this could also be a colloquial, hyperbolic phrase. Uh, We kind of have a much weaker statement, but he's the kind of guy who will give you his shirt off his back. This is a much stronger statement saying that, I would even give you my eyes. I care about you that much. But it could also be that Paul really did have that weakness of eyes and they had so much compassion and they saw him as such a blessing that they wished they could do anything to help Paul. Yet a riff and a change has come in their relationship. Paul, in sadness, says, Have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? Formerly, the Galatians had considered Paul visiting them as a blessing and themselves as blessed through this encounter. But now, through the influence of the false teachers, they no longer view Paul as a blessing and a friend, but in fact, as an enemy. The false teachers had convinced them that Paul was not really their friend, that Paul had held back the truth from them, the full truth, and he gave them a watered-down gospel excluding the requirements of circumcision and the ceremonial law of Israel. Paul made his gospel more palatable for these simple Galatians. He's not your friend. He's your enemy. Yet notice that Paul doesn't back down. He's firm in his friendship, and he affirms that he has not been false to them. And in perplexity, he asks if he has ironically become their enemy by telling them the truth. In context of the letter, the truth that Paul is referring to is his full and free explanation of the gospel with the freedom it brings from sin and slavery and all forms of cultural class and hierarchy. In this passage, we come face to face with the stumbling block, which is the gospel. We've talked about knowing God, and here we're talking about knowing God's servants. In 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 24, Paul states, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. In speaking to the Galatians, Paul is not surprised at all that the truth of the gospel is a stumbling block to the Judaizing false teachers among the Galatians. Nor is he taken off guard that the power of the cross is foolishness to the Greeks. But what does have him perplexed and confused is that the Galatian church, those to whom he has ministered, who have received the gospel, who know God as their Father, are united to Christ and have received the spirit of adoption, that these people, his friends, that they could now want to return to the types and shadows, to the elementary principles, to slavery, when they had already been set free. 
Paul's perplexity with the Galatians calls on all of us to reflect. In his ministry among the Galatians, Paul has been a faithful servant of Christ and a friend to them. He has told them the truth of the gospel, that because of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, there are no longer distinctions between Jews and Greeks, between slaves and free, between male and female. For the only thing that matters is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul has not backed down from this central truth of the gospel. But by returning to subservience to Sinai, the sons of God are seeking to return to the slavery of Egypt. In his ministry, Paul has been a virtuous and faithful friend. He has testified to the gospel, wherein those who were once enemies of God, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, are now made friends and children of God. But because of his faithfulness, Paul is now being counted as an enemy. In looking at this passage, we learn how to know God's true and faithful servants. A true minister of God should help you to know God and your freedom, the freedom of the gospel. That through faith you are united to Jesus Christ and dwelt by the Spirit and you may call out to God as Abba, Father. A true servant of God should make you make much of Christ and not of themselves and not of yourself. That is how you know a true servant of God. Somebody who makes much of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel. And in this we see that Paul helps us to understand those who are false servants, like these false teachers in Galatia. They make much of themselves and they lead people away from Christ. Which brings us to our next and final point. We've considered knowing God. We've just looked at knowing God's servants. Now let's consider knowing ourselves. So far, Paul has been addressing the Galatians and reflecting on his past ministry and experiences among them. Now he turns their attention to the false teachers who are presently among them, highlighting how they are not truly God's servants and they are not truly friends of the Galatians. So Paul says in verse 17, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. In these last four verses, Paul is using this language of making much. This is a good translation, actually. But a more literal translation, and I think it's helpful for us, is Paul is saying that they are zealous or jealous. Paul says here that these false teachers are jealous for the Galatians. But he qualifies by saying that they are are zealous for no good purpose. He explains what he means by this no good purpose by saying that the false teachers want to shut them out in order that the Galatians may be zealous for them. In other words, these false teachers are not zealous for the Galatians in order that they may know God and the freedom which they have in Christ. Instead, they're trying to make them disciples of themselves and bring them back into slavery to draw them away from the Lord Jesus Christ and the Christian freedom which they have now come to experience. So Paul goes on to describe the difference between ungodly and godly zeal, saying in verse 18, it's always good to be made much of or zealous for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. Paul wants the Galatians to be zealous 
but he wants them to be zealous for a good purpose or reason. He wants them to be zealous for the Lord Jesus Christ and to make much of Jesus and his gospel, which brings life, freedom, and a true knowledge of God. And notice how Paul does does not want this zeal to be directed towards him at all. He does not want the Galatians to make much of him and his ministry. Rather, he says, it's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. Unlike the false teachers, Paul does not have an ulterior motive in his ministry. He does not want to make them devoted to him as a teacher. He wants to make them more and more committed to Christ and his gospel. Whether or not he is present or absent, he wants them to persevere in this zeal, serving the Lord Jesus Christ in all faithfulness. He wants them to be zealous for what's good, to be devoted to Christ and his gospel, which brings freedom and friendship with God. Notice that Paul switches that metaphor from friendship to the familial, stating in verse 19, My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. Paul uses the language of a parent in reference to believers whom he has been the one who initially gave the gospel to them. He sees himself in this kind of parental relationship with them because he, in a sense, gave spiritual birth to them in his ministry. And using this metaphor, Paul powerfully emphasizes the intense agony and feeling which he has for the Galatians. I I don't need to testify to the mothers in the congregation how painful, how agonizing childbirth is. Paul is saying that in a spiritual sense, I am going through those pains right now over you, over this situation. Through his ministry, he had once given birth to a, a faithful and fruitful congregation in Galatia, but now they're falling back into paganism and slavery. So the process of birth is happening again as Paul is agonizing over these believers. All of this reinforces that the goal of Paul is not that the Galatians would be zealous for him or make much of him, but that Christ Jesus would be formed in them, that they would be conformed to him. Paul wants them to understand their union with Christ and to grow up in Christ in maturity and the knowledge of all the freedom which Christ has given to them through his gospel. He finishes his appeal in verse 20 stating, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. That should be read as a statement of despair over the situation. Paul is genuinely confused, perplexed, saddened, and in agony over what's happening to his beloved church, who has now turned from the true gospel. Paul does not like that he has to be this harsh with the Galatians. He does not like that he has to be apart from them, and he wants to be present with them. He wants to speak to them as to what they are, as they truly are, believers in Christ, Sons and daughters of God and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, but as of right now, they're not acting in accordance with that identity. Right now, he is perplexed and confused. How is it that those who have heard the good news of the gospel of grace, who have believed in Christ, have received his Holy Spirit, how is it that they are now turning back to the world 
the flesh, and the devil to seek to fulfill their lusts and desires of status, worth, and satisfaction apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. To parents of wayward children, I don't need to explain to you how bad this agony is that Paul is experiencing. He has a sense of frustration, confusion, and sadness over all the labor which appears to be wasted among them. Paul has ministered among the Galatians as a friend, and now he's appealing to them as a parent, even as a mother who has birthed them into the new world of the gospel of grace and freedom. But now they are seeking to return again to slavery and sin. To the Galatians, the message is clear. Know who you are. Know who you have become in Christ. Embrace this reality and do not turn back to your former life of slavery to the elemental principles of the world. The same message comes to us. Know ourselves. Are, are you in Christ or are you outside of Christ? Are you alienated from the covenant promises of God or are you embracing them by faith? Are you living in accordance with your new life which you have with Christ or are you enslaving yourself to demonic forces of this world? We need to look to Christ. We need to embrace him by faith and embrace the freedom we have and turn from all those other false forms of gaining our status or worth or satisfaction. True satisfaction, true worth, and true status can only be found in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and embracing him by faith. Today we began by considering the concept of friendship. In this world, there are different kinds of friendships. Sometimes they will be based on pleasure, sometimes on utility, and sometimes even on virtue. And the mutual esteem which we have for others. But in this text, Paul describes to us a higher view of friendship. A friendship which can only exist between believers in Christ. It's not merely that of pleasure, utility, or virtue. Here Paul tells us of Christian friendship and what it means to be friends with God. In his ministry, Paul has proclaimed the gospel of Christ, the truth wherein sinners are made saints, where enemies of God are made his friends and sons through faith. As we reflect on this text tonight, let us all embrace Christ Jesus as our closest friend. May we reject the the demarcations, the allocations of the world, and may we embrace Christ as he's freely offered in the gospel. May we embrace our status of worth as sons and daughters of God, bought with a price and loved eternally, and let us continually push our friends to this gospel, to this freedom. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are again humbled to hear of your grace that you bring us from slavery. We pray, Lord, that by faith we would come to Mount Zion and we would not seek to go to Sinai or to return to slavery in Egypt, but that we would enjoy and embrace the freedom of the sons and daughters of God. Lord, through the weakness of our flesh, we are always tempted to return to a form of slavery and to serve the world, the flesh, and the devil. We pray that tonight, by your Spirit, you would use this word to have us embrace Christ more truly and more faithfully. 
We pray that you would build us up in all grace, that the labor that we have done in this church, the labor which we do in ministering to each other, that it would not be in vain, but that we would embrace Christ and that we would come to that day when we receive that crown and when we hear that statement, well done, good and faithful servant. It is only by your grace that we are sustained. So we pray and trust in you as our Father. It's in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name we pray. Amen.